に上がら関係ねえ<笑> Shall we begin? Into his coming I can do this all day Tear down this wall Welcome to another episode of the Unscriptified Podcast and another journey through time, powered by Jägermeister. In our exploration of power, conquest, and the timeless narratives etched into the legacy of Rome, we are joined by one of the most prominent historians of the Roman history. He wrote Caesar, Life of a Colossus, The Punic Wars, Pax Romana, Augustus, First Emperor of Rome, and with 40 other books listed on Goodreads and around 120,000 ratings, he is none other than Adrian Goldsworthy. Mr. Goldsworthy, thank you for joining us, and are you ready to go genuine uncensored and unscripted with us today? Yes, certainly. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thank you for being here. Uh, obviously, all boys dream of Rome, but when did you? Uh, when did your dream start? What inspired your passion for Roman history, and what keeps the fire burning still? Uh, it's it's lots of things, really. I mean, it. I think um, the Asterix books had quite a lot to do with it when I was a boy, and uh, seeing some Good of the one. epics on, on, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, some of the old epics like Spartacus and Ben Hur on the the television. Um, but also, I grew up not far away, about thirty kilometers from the Roman site of Caelian, which was a legionary fortress, and you can still see the amphitheater. You can see parts of the walls, the barracks. So. I love all history. It just fascinates me because it's about people and great stories. But there was something about the Romans. They came to where I lived, so it made it part of my history somehow. It seemed more, I don't know, immediate, more personal. So um, it's... it's And the one thing, as a, as a friend of mine said about the Romans, you might not want to have them living next door to you, but they're never boring. They, you know, it's always lots of exciting stuff. They're larger than life. Some of it's terrible, but it's dramatic. So it, it's... The fascination is still there. I, I can easily get distracted mm. into almost any topic of history or you visit a place, you think, oh, I'd like to know more about that. But the Romans, they just keep coming back because there's, there's so much more to tell about them and learn. Well, most most of the human history is terrible, so that's not really a distinction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, true, true. But terrible <laughs> is usually very interesting. That's that's kind of the thing. Yes, yeah, so it makes for good stories, and it's dramatic. You know, you are looking at these um, these great wars, these great conflicts, cruelty but kindness as well. So it's it's that mix of what makes us human as to what we can do under mm -hmm. some circumstances for both good and bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, but uh, now you mentioned, obviously, that that's a pretty reasonable fact that uh, you you grow up near the near the Roman history, so, so to speak. Uh, so that's why it interests you, but let me ask you this, uh, like, uh, and you mentioned like that all of history is in some sense uh, interesting, as I, I, I agree very much with you. Mm. Uh, do you think that something as grand as the Roman Empire that spans, you know, so many years, centuries, uh, do you think we kind of at this point in time understand it to, to say it like that? Do you think we have a grasp of truly who the Romans were? I think we're some way towards that, but there's so much. The thing is, you know, who do you mean by the Romans or even the Roman Empire? If you, yeah, exactly. you say you start with Augustus, then there's an empire in the West till the 5th century, and you have Constantinople continuing till the 15th century. Yeah. So just who are the Romans? And they change a lot. You know, that's a huge amount of time. And you've even, you've got a lot of Roman history before you get to Augustus. So there's so much, and it's it's interesting when you look at a, a province on the frontiers, as as Britain would become, the people who are setting up monuments, they're using Latin, they're depicting themselves dressed as Romans, but they could be from almost anywhere in the empire. So mm. there's so much detail, and we have such a tiny, tiny fraction of the sources that once existed, whether it's the literature or the day-to-day, -day, the letters, the personal details, you know. It, so we're, we're glimpsing, we've got parts of the jigsaw, and we can sort of just about see its overall shape. There's so many bits that maybe archaeology will discover more, but there's so much we will never really know because we don't get the viewpoint of the ordinary Roman soldier or the the person living in a village in whichever province when the Romans arrive. How do they see it? What's it like to be born in the Roman Empire? Um, and at the different stages, you know, when you think when the Romans leave, so many areas had no real sense of their identity before the Romans came along. You know, there's no real continuity in Britain. 
and Britain, they're, they're only there for 350 years or so. You know, it's one of the, the most recent provinces acquired, and it's still that immense period of time where people just can't remember what life was like before. So there's, there's so much more to learn and so much more to... We can at least ask lots of questions. It's just we can't always get a, a clear answer. Mm. I mean, but uh, how do you avoid maybe oversimplification of Roman life in your books? It's, it's difficult. difficult. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing I think is very important for somebody like myself and anybody writing serious history is to say not simply what we know, but also the things we don't actually know or when we're guessing, when we're saying, well, this yeah. is the evidence and we think, but, you know, again, you some, I was um, just written about the, the Romans and the Parthians and the Persians. If you look at the great wars of Trajan in the second century AD against the Parthians or mm -hmm. Lucius Verus later on, Septimius Severus, you can put on less than one page would be all the historical narrative we get from the period describing those three major conflicts. Mm. It's tiny, and yet these were big wars with an emperor going there. So there's so much we just don't know, and you've got to keep reminding people that this is where I'm guessing. This is where I'm mm -hmm. trying to piece it together. And as I say, I think you, are, you can ask the questions because you can also say, well, virtually everything is told from the point of view of the Romans, or the Greeks sometimes, but it's told from the, the point of view of the very wealthy, of the politically important. So you've got to remember, you know, there are lots of other people out there who maybe see things differently. Yeah. So you can ask about that, but again, you can't, you glimpse their lives through archaeology. You glimpse it from some of the, the artworks, the sculpture, this sort of thing. But mm -hmm. there's so much that's lost. So you have to keep remembering that and reminding people and saying, well, this is the evidence we have, and I'm trying to understand it in the best way possible. I'm trying to make the most of it, but there's so much more we'd love to know and mm, so much yeah. more detail we'd like to have. Yeah. Yeah. Something, maybe the problem is because uh, some of historians approach this, this voice. They have, they try to feel it uh, as artists and not as scientists, right? Right. Yes. And I, I it's it's partly because as a as a sort of hobby as a sideline I write novels as well historical novels so I am very very clear when I'm writing a historical novel I can invent things but when I'm doing the history I don't like the style I mean some people can make it work but where it's you know they're sort of imagining what Caesar would be thinking on this particular day yeah. and the, yeah. what he'd smell the surroundings and that's fine if, but make it clear that's fiction that's a novel mm -hmm. you're yeah. guessing from what we know but um it's you know i went last week to see the the napoleon film in the cinema and it's it's an imagining and that's fine that's what it is it's not pretending to be a documentary at all so the history is all over the place but it's an entertaining film so as long as you know you've got to be very clear what you're doing at any one time and sometimes people pretend they can sort of fill in the gaps they work out yeah this is what cleopatra would have thought and done so we don't know that we don't have any evidence, but I know what she was like. Therefore, that's what she would have done or Caesar or Augustus, whoever it might be. That's fatal. That's not good history because we don't know. And, you know, you can even somebody, one of your best friends might occasionally do something that really surprises you. So what can you expect from someone who's been dead for 2000 years? You can't know <laughs> them in that way. Yeah, I mean, as I'm listening to you talk, I... I know it's not the same, but I read, for example, Ron Chernow's book on uh, biographies on John D. Rockefeller and uh, Alexander Hamilton, and they are very thorough. And mm. one, of, one of the things I like when, in his writing, he compiles all the evidence he has on a certain event, and sometimes he gives his own sort of opinion on it, but he very clearly states, this is how one people see it, this is how I see it, but mm. I just, you know, I just am, this is just my opinion mm -hmm. of this man. It doesn't affect in any way of who he was, you know, and I, 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 that's why I like, I feel like there's certain objectivism when I read. And, and it's, it's honest at a at basic level. You're saying, you know, this is what I, where I'm guessing. This is where I'm, I'm working for the evidence and what I think, but it is just that my thoughts, my opinion. And I think that's, that's proper history. When you start to say, yes, I know all the answers, then you know, you're, there's, it just undermines everything you're doing because 
so much is likely to be different. So much is going to be wrong. And um, and the problem is then people repeat these things, you know. So I, I'm I'm so used to getting asked questions. Oh, did this really happen? You say no, that was in the TV series Spartacus or something. I think it's not. It's not in any ancient sources or, or something. You know, something even more reputable than that, but not. Um, so it's it's a danger. But the, as historians, when we're doing it properly, we've got to be honest and we've got to say. This is the evidence, so this is where we can be pretty confident this is what happened, and this is where I'm guessing because this is what the evidence seems to be pointing to me, but I might not be right. You know, it could be there there is plenty of room for other interpretations. And and in the end, if somebody can come take an argument for one of my books and look using the evidence better, can say, actually, I disagree and I think this is what happens, then good. We've learned something. You know, it's not about ego. It's not about saying I'm the best historian. I can do this, and I'm always right. It's all about learning. So if somebody comes up with better ideas, great. That's um, that's how we learn. Do you have Do you have a maybe favorite pop culture misconception about ancient Rome? <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, oh, it's there's this, there's so many. I mean, one we always get in Britain because we have this monument, Hadrian's Wall, up in the north of England near Scotland. And you, all these people will tell you, well, of course, there are all these these people from Italy who were shivering in the cold of a British winter and were fed up with it. When, you know, the soldiers are from all over the empire, half of them are from Belgium and Germany, and some of them are from Britain, like anywhere else in the Roman Empire. It's it's mixed. It's um, So, yes, there, there's that that one comes up. Um, the other one, you sort of get it thrown to you. Oh, so what's the connection between Julius Caesar and Caesar salad? Or things like that. I knew that. What? <laughs> so, so, but yeah, surprise! It's surprising what how the, the the mental picture some people have of the Romans, and equally surprising where you'll you'll just be chatting to someone and they, you find they've read an incredible amount just as a hobby and got really in. So have this. So you you never quite know what sort of question you're going to get asked when people find out what you do, and it might be really detailed or it might be some really crazy off the wall thing that has more to do with. You know, Kirk Douglas or Charles Nelson or something that it does with with any yeah. proper history. Yeah, I mean, you would surprise you would be surprised how many people uh, are surprised when they uh, when they find out that Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas isn't actually Caesar. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But um, uh, have you maybe during your research uh, gathering evidence stories similar? Uh, have you come across the term as Duclair? I beg your Doclea, kingdom. No, uh, it's the predecessor of our nation, the kingdom. Ah, right. it's, yeah. That's getting a bit modern for me. You see, oh, yeah. Any, <laughs> anything that happens after about the year 200, I, you know, I struggle. Yeah. It's not quite real Understood. as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. So I'll skip that one. Yeah. Uh, are there any lesser known aspects of... Uh, of a Roman history that you personally find particularly intriguing or or they are overlooked by other uh, historians? Oh, it's there's a lot really, because sometimes, particularly as I'm I write books that I hope people with a general knowledge will pick up and read. So you have to it's easier to go for topics and people that they they're likely to to know and recognize the name. They might not necessarily know anymore, but at least they but they've heard of Julius Caesar, or so they'll, or they've yeah. heard of Alexander the Great, whatever. Um, I, I still, I began when I was doing my formal research when I was at, um, at Oxford. All aspects of the Roman army, in particular, and how it worked, mm. how it functioned, fascinated me. So, and still do. So, there are lots of little details and, and things that we'd love to know, um, and that you just wonder about. And then, because I've written some novels in that period as well. When you write a novel, you have to ask different questions of the evidence because you're much more interested in what clothes people are wearing, what food they eat, how they prepare it, what would they see when they come out of a door. And it's the opposite to being writing history because then you've got to be honest and say, we don't know this. But in a story, mm -hmm. when it's just a novel, somebody can't come open the door, step into a barrack blocks, and there's nothing there, you know, because we don't know what was in the room. So you've yeah. got to... <laughs> so that, that's been quite interesting. It's made me ask different questions and reminded me one of the other dangers as a historian is that you you push time together and you make you sort of say, oh, this 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 process or this change happened quickly, and you mean three years or five years or sometimes ten years. 
and archaeologists will date to site. They'll say it's you know late first century or late Flavian, maybe something like that, or early Trajanic. Whereas when you write a novel and it's set on a particular day in a particular year, you've got to work out had this road been built then, and if so, why? What's it connecting? Why is it there? Is this fort there when you've got a date range of ten years, maybe twenty years for its foundation, and what's going on? And the other reminder is that people will see these archaeological remains. They'll look at a fort or a, a you know something like Hadrian's Wall, and they'll see, oh well, this this seems to have barrack blocks for a garrison of five hundred soldiers, auxiliary cohort, or maybe a double strength cohort, and then they seem to assume that those soldiers just stay there. And they forget that, yeah, this is where the fort is, but in a day's march, even if you're not going very fast, you can be 20 kilometers away. And in a week's time, you're a long way away. So you, you're actually looking at where the army lives, not necessarily where it operates, where it fights, where it does things. And that people can move around a lot more. So it's a reminder. And once you look, once you look at the ancient sources with this, you start to see things you hadn't noticed before. And you realize, actually, yeah, there's, that's clearly there in the sources. People are moving around far more. They're doing more because you know, we say, oh, well, somebody's posted to command an auxiliary unit in a province for maybe three years. That's our best estimate, which isn't based on terribly secure evidence, but is the best we've got to go on at the moment until something else turns out. And you think, well, actually, three years is a long time in somebody's life. So now that it's clear from the evidence from Northern Britain and elsewhere that when a, an equestrian goes off to command an auxiliary cohort or serves a tribute, his family goes with him. His wife, his children, his household, his slaves. And they set up house in this purpose-built house for them in, a, in a, an auxiliary fort. Because in mm -hmm. three years, it's worth traveling even to Northern Britain or out to Syria or to the North Africa, you know, wherever you might be on the Danube. Three years might, it sometimes doesn't sound very long to historian, but in the way we live our lives, that's a long, long time. Yeah. So it's a reminder to look at the past in this way and just remember that these, these people are human beings and they're living lives much like us. So it, it's, 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 it's a good thing, I think, for the historian to just remind yourself of that aspect as well. Uh -huh. hmm. uh, let me ask you this. You, you obviously mentioned warfare and uh, soldiers and war is obviously part of humanity, but also the Romans specifically. And you wrote the Pax Romana, which is mm. the Roman peace or the period of prosperity. And, and you know, and there, there, there wasn't much of warfare in the Roman Empire. And you, you wrote something very interesting uh, at the very beginning. You said that, I'm not quoting you exactly, but you were writing as peace is a commodity. It, mm. it was rare then, it is rare now. Uh, and, you know, it was kind of celebrated. Um, mm. And what I would ask you is like, uh, that's the time of prosperity of Rome. We see it at its prime, so to speak. Uh, when you compare it to, say, uh, fall of the Western Roman Empire, mm. uh, how would you compare those two periods in general? Like, what is, obviously something is terribly went down, mm. but in general, how would you say this is truly what changed? And this is how it was operated then, and this is how it was operated forty seventy six. The the striking thing is when you look at the empire in its heyday in the first, particularly the second century AD, you can see that people are moving from one end of the empire to another. As as a matter of course, it's quite easy, and they might be doing it because they're soldiers, but also because they're traders um, or families. So, for instance, there's a a tombstone that came from just south of Hadrian's Wall of a woman called Regina, who was originally a slave from just north of London today. But her husband, who set up this memorial to her, is from Palmyra, out in Syria. And although she's depicted as a very sort of proper Roman lady sitting in a chair in a proper dress, and the inscriptions in Latin at the bottom, you've got, in his own language, going right to left rather than left to right, a, a just... You know, it's um, Regina, the wife of Barates, alas, it translates as. Um, but people are moving around, goods are moving around. You can find the same styles of shoes, of hairstyle, go throughout the empire in the course of a decade or so. And there are a lot of people. And there's, you know, not all are wealthy. There are some very, very poor people living in pretty desperate conditions. But 
a significant proportion of the population is quite comfortably off. And you have the same law and you have that stability. You move into the later fourth, into the fifth century, and you've had centuries of civil war. You know, it, it, it's always struck me that if you look at the, the murder of Caracalla in 217 and go up until the, the, the end of Romulus Augustulus in 476 AD, there are only three periods of 10 years without a civil war somewhere in the empire. It becomes so normal. Everybody lives through this. And it might happen. Most of the fighting might be in a different part of the empire. But if you're someone who got your job because you were recommended by somebody on the losing side, then you might well suffer quite badly. And you don't have, you know, there's a lot more warfare later on. A lot of it is Roman against Roman. And you're wasting your... So the empire ceases to function. It, it's a gradual thing. It happens slowly and people get used to it. The thing is, it's the empire is so successful, so prosperous that it can decline over a very, very long period of time. And in your individual life, you might not think things are that much worse than they were because you haven't, you don't remember the really sort of the great. <laughs> and depending on where you live, if you're closer you are to the Mediterranean, the better things like trade survive, the better levels of prosperity. Somewhere like Britain on the fringes, and you'll see you've got people will set up inscriptions where they're, you know, for a tombstone, for a monument, say they've built this. Now they become less common to the point where, as far as we can tell, writing pretty much stops for well over a century in in Britain. And it's only preserved by the church in areas to the west where when the Anglo-Saxons come in, those areas, you know, it's just, it's gone. It has to be reintroduced much later. And you're not buying goods from a thousand miles away, you're probably buying them from 20 miles away. You know, it's local. Everything, most of what you're eating, most of what you're using, your tableware, your clothes are made locally. You no longer care about what fashion the women of the imperial family are, how they're wearing their hair, what sort of shoes people are wearing, because you just don't know and you don't care. And you're living with a much more basic level of things. And life is a lot more dangerous. So... The change is pretty drastic. It varies from area to area. And of course, the eastern provinces of the empire survive much better because you've got still the eastern empire that will go on uh, for a long, long time. So a lot depends on where you are. But, you know, you have to wonder. People are moving around in those the, those earlier periods. And that makes you wonder, well, so are fashions. But also, you know, how about tunes, songs, ideas, things like that? The same plays are being performed, the same mimes in the theater. And that stops. So you're no longer part of such a big world. And it's also very interesting when you look at the numbers of soldiers involved or warriors in some of the armies that will come out and will carve out kingdoms in the, in the West. Or when, in the 6th century, Justinian will send fewer than 10,000 men to reconquer North Africa. And they do it. Now, that's a tiny army compared to the things that have happened. It shows how small a scale. I mean, there are probably fewer people around in general, but even so, you can't organize big armies in the way that you could before. So you can see it in so many different aspects. And as I say, it varies, and some areas don't suffer anywhere near as much. But so much of the empire does it, and it's not this big unit that it had been. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, as, as a student of economics we're both out of student of economics you know it's it's interesting you know because i i, I think it's obvious that when empires fall societies don't do well they're probably their economy isn't doing well as yeah <laughs> as a matter of fact uh but uh and we know about the fall that uh at the time inflation was sky high and uh heavy tax burdens and things like that was there anything during that Pax Romana period economically, besides obviously peace as a ground mm. groundwork for anything to develop, that was like further add on economically that helped empire prosper, so to speak? It's very hard to tell because these are the sort of details that our sources don't give us. So we have to deduce and guess from the archaeology. I mean, one thing obviously is communications. You've got the the road system of the empire that you know won't be matched again in europe till well the 19th century in many places you know it's and in some not even there where you've got this network of roads you can use all the year around and again it comes back to the security element it's 
reasonably safe to travel and the sea lanes are reasonably safe. Um, there's an element where you've concentrated people. There is a big debate amongst um, economic historians of the ancient world as to just how cities, which are so important within the empire, because the Romans think very much in terms of cities and this old idea of the polis, the city-state from, from the Greeks, whether they are essentially consumers or whether they also produce. I think the evidence is actually switching more to the way that the, many of them produce rather a lot. Um, because the old idea was they're essentially parasites. They just suck in population. They suck in money. Yeah. They don't. And they. It's it's partly because in trying to be scientific, a lot of the economic studies of the ancient world have been too primitive. They've assumed levels of you know. For instance, there was a, a, one of the recent studies of life expectancy in the Roman Empire argued that it would be equivalent to the the early Neolithic. You know that it's actually things have got worse, and that's. And partly they don't understand that, yes, cities mean that epidemics can spread more quickly, so they can be dangerous. But they have this rather fixed idea that cities consume population, so they need constant migration to the cities, otherwise the population will fall. That's not really backed up by the archaeology. Um, and we have a problem. I think we consistently underestimate the population size of the ancient world in general, but especially in the Roman period. Partly because um, it's interesting. If you look at settlement patterns, we get this fixed idea. We'll often see in lots of parts of Northern Europe, people don't build villages. They live in sort of family farms, clusters of five or six buildings, pen, animal pens around them. And then archaeologically, when you survey an area, just 300, 400, 500 meters away, there's another one and another one and another one. Now, scholars will often come and assume, well, that means because we, we've rarely excavated and we can't date these sites easily, they think it's one family group that over the generations moves from one site to another and abandons the other. But if you go to parts of South Africa today, you will actually see that's how people live today. They don't mm -hmm. like to live close together, but each family lives with maybe seven or eight, maybe 10 cows and a few you know, other animals in this little cluster of huts. And then... 400 meters away, there's another one and another one. And it's like a sort of network. And that's exactly the plan you see in so many settlement patterns in the ancient world. And if you interpret it the traditional way, that it's one family moving every 30 years or so, then there's not many people. But if you actually mm -hmm. think maybe most of these are occupied at the same time, suddenly there's far more. And the another striking thing, any Roman, any site that's occupied before the Romans, during the Roman period, and then afterwards certainly in Northwest Europe, but also in large parts of the Roman Empire, the sheer quantity of objects that you find from the Roman levels is far, far larger than anything you find before or after. And it's not spectacular stuff. It's quite low quality in many cases. But it testifies to how much is being produced and that therefore enough people can afford this stuff. So I think there's a lot more going on and the economic activity... It's, it's one of the good things that in the last 20, 30 years or so, we've started to realize that technologically there is much more progress than we tend to allow. So that for a long time, it was always assumed lots of the big innovations came in the medieval world. And that was partly because when monks produced those wonderful illuminated manuscripts, they drew things. And we don't, when you sculpt something on stone, it's very hard to show the suspension of a carriage or a coach for people. Now, now, archaeologically, we've turned up finds to show that these are just as well designed as anything you had in the 18th century. They're very modern from the Roman period, but we didn't know that before because the pictures of them look crude and simple. Oh. And the Roman use of water, whether it's to um, for mining or whether it's even to power saws to cut marble, is a lot more sophisticated. They don't develop windmills to any great extent. That's a medieval thing. But they don't half use water power in ways that we never suspected until quite recently. So there's a lot more innovation going on, but it isn't really done by the people who write the histories that survive. So I think there is this, this combination of that peace, that prosperity, and lots of markets. There are lots of people out there. In the same way that there is material coming from China and from India, all the way into the Roman Empire, to the point where Roman sources are talking about how much money is going out of the empire every year, how much we spend on luxuries. But it's worth somebody's while to bring it all that way in. 
quite considerable quantities. And you have this, you know, this one of the the, the oddest things is that in later later antiquity you have silk that comes from China. It's brought into the Roman Empire, and then in workshops, mainly in Roman Syria, they reweave that silk to make it finer, and they dye it in ways that the Chinese didn't know how to do. And then they sell it mm. back, ultimately, to the Chinese, who become convinced that Westerners have their own type of silkworm, something different from their own. So you've got both people seeing this thing as a luxury that they can transport these thousands of miles and pay for. So it's... I think there is just far more going on and gradually that picture is emerging and gradually we're realizing that there's there's more people, there's more money, there's more trade, there's more of a, it's not quite a modern economy, but it is quite sophisticated um, than we tended to allow because we for a while we became obsessed with the Romans being quite primitive and it, it just doesn't, it meant we did ask some important questions, but it, it was just pushed far too far. While we are near the topic of military proofs, Roman tactics always comes into the discussion. So could you tell me which strategy or innovation maybe determined or uh, or were crucial for Rome's success of the battlefield? I mean, again, we have to remember Roman history is so long uh, that, you know, there's, there's lots of change. There's lots of um, differences depending on the period. They face different threats, different problems. They have different ambitions. I remember I wrote a book called Roman Warfare on... And I was asked to cover a thousand years of Roman military history. And it was part of a series when there were something like four volumes on the Second World War. You know, you had war in the air, war at sea, war in the east, war in the west. Yes. <laughs> and I got a thousand years to cover in that just that time. I think the key just thing... A thousand years. A thousand years. Yeah, exactly. Just in 40,000 words. That's that's fine. So yeah. it was... Um, <laughs> but the interesting thing with the Romans, and it's particularly true of the most successful periods of, of Roman history, is that they, they're they very flexible and they learn from their mistakes and they adapt. And it's a striking thing of the Romans that not many cultures necessarily do, but they, they took great pride and they boasted that they would copy anything good that the enemy did. So, you know, they would say, yeah, they would learn that we've had to, you know, we learned how to fight in a phalanx from the Etruscans. We got our sword from the Spanish, we got our armor from the Gauls, you know, we would, they'd copy things. And if, you know, if the other side had it, they'd just make more of them and they'd learn how to use it. And and that, it's, you see this mentality as well. We tend to think of the Romans, there's this whole idea that they're very, you know, they're not professionals in a modern sense for most periods. Mm-hmm. Their commanders are senators, they're people who get voted into office and just get given an army in a province. And they're expected. It's not like today where you go to a military academy and you'll be trained and, you know, you'll go through this very rigid uh, career structure. But they are they're good at learning. They um, and they're good at listening to people who do know what they're doing and they'll copy the other side. And whether that's locally, they always recruit. You know, any Roman army at any period is never more than 50 percent Roman, even in the most you know, half the Roman army for spirit is auxiliary. So you go to every area and you find people who are good at fighting in that, that particular country. You know, they're good in the mountains, they're good in the desert, they have particular skills and knowledge, and you hire them, you know, sort of, and you can nearly always find somebody locally who doesn't like their neighbors who's willing to fight on your side against them. Because <laughs> they've known them for generations and they really hate them, whereas the Romans are just you, so, you know... Um, so again, they they copy, they innovate, they they have this genius for absorbing people. I mean, it, it's the uh, I think unique in history. You know, you could look at the United States of America and how they bring people from all over the world and make them American, but the Romans oh, yeah. went out into the wider world and made them Roman. And when you think yeah. for so much of their history, you serve as an ordinary soldier in the Roman auxiliaries, and okay, you've got to serve for twenty five years, so it's a big commitment. And you've got to live long enough to be discharged. But at the end of that, you become a Roman citizen with all the legal rights of anybody else. And your children are Romans. And if they want to, they can go off and, and join the league. And to the, the extent where, you know, you have emperors come in the later periods from all over the Roman Empire, from Spain, from Syria, from North Africa, you know, that, but they're Roman. Nobody is bothered by the fact of what they look like, where they've come from, because they culturally, they bought into the Roman system. So, yeah. and that's, the army is, is one of the means of doing this, but it's that, that adaptability, that ability to absorb others, both temporarily when you need them to fight, but also in the longer term. And 
The other striking thing, the Romans, they don't give up easily. So they fight these wars where they take appalling casualties, say when they're fighting Hannibal and the Carthaginians. Oh. You know, in, in three years, one third of Roman Senate is killed. And, you know, a large chunk of mm. about 100,000 of your, your adult male Roman and Latin allies are dead in just that time. That's a, it's a huge chunk of your population. There aren't many societies that could take those sorts of losses and not say, okay, let's negotiate. Let's just give in. Um, because that's all Hannibal wanted. He just wants to mm. dictate terms to them. He's not trying to destroy them. But they, for much of their history, they see everything as a sort of a battle for survival. And they just don't quit. And they keep mm -hmm. coming back at you. And because they learn, and they might start the war doing badly, but they learn from the enemy. And by the end, they're usually as good as the enemy's being. And later on, obviously, when they've got a more professional army, they're usually better than everybody to start off with. Um, mm -hmm. So they have all these advantages. And they just... It's maybe perhaps, I mean, it's not something you'd want in a modern democracy, but because their political leadership always provides their military leadership as well, they usually have a very clear idea of what they want from a war. So it's not just let's go off and fight and then maybe we'll fight them again in 10 years' time or you know, we'll just get a bit of glory, a bit of money and go home. They think in more permanent, long-term ideas. It's there's an interesting quote from a, a historian writing in the Roman period who talks about Philip II, Alexander the Great's father, and very sort of, you know, he's, 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 he, doesn't, he obviously doesn't see this as admirable, but he says, Philip made war like a merchant. You know, he basically invested money in an army, won a victory, and then took the, pros the profits from that victory to invest in his army for the next war and the next war, and he keeps on, and he thinks the Romans are a bit like that. They almost think in this business-like way of it's, mm -hmm. it's sustainable rather than war simply being part of society to prove that your kings and your chieftains are brave and are glorious and all this sort of thing. They, they, there is a purpose to it. So I think that gives them a big advantage. They're just thinking in a different way to nearly everybody else out there. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned Hannibal and the Punic Wars. And uh, I have here a quote on Latin, which I, which will I try to pronounce uh, from Cato. Peterum cancel Carthaginim esse delandum, or by the way, I think that Carthage must be destroyed. Mm. Romans were obsessed uh, with uh, maybe with Carthage more than any other state they were fighting with, may maybe Persians or something. So, and you mentioned the Battle of Cannae, right? Mm. And how do you see this conflict be between Carthage, uh, uh, Hannibal, and between uh, Roman? Because, as you said, Hannibal didn't want to destroy them. He wanted to negotiate. And in the end, Carthage got destroyed. And that would be a great movie. The, the fall of yes. Carthage the, the, in the final third period. Yes, yes. There's the, well, there's so much. You look at history and you keep thinking, oh, I'd love to see that on screen. You could, you know, <laughs> backdrop for a story and just to try and do it. You know, they might get lots of things wrong, but it's like, you know, the Oliver Stone Alexander movie. There's lots of it that's just a bit strange, but there are a few scenes that are just, you think, yeah, that's close to right. That really looks close to how I imagine it anyway. Like the, the Battle of mm. Gaugamila they do there is very well done. Um, mm. It's the Punic Wars. I mean, it's an interesting struggle because, again, we forget that when it's when the, the first war starts, the Romans are just a power in Italy. You know, they're not the mm. empire they, they're going to become. Yeah. And, and we know they're going to do that. And we know they're going to be around for a long time. But they just seem another Italian state. You know, they, they've grown. And... But even that first Punic War, the one that's fought mainly around Sicily, because it's not so well described in such detail by our sources, we forget the losses the Romans suffer, mainly through their fleets being wrecked at sea. You know, they, they, mm -hmm. they build warships, they're good at fighting them, they're just not very good at sailing them. And they don't mm -hmm. really understand the power of the weather. Um, so, but they suffer, you know, tens of thousands of loss of, of, of dead year after year, and yet they keep going. And they keep on building another fleet and another fleet. They then treat the Carthaginians. It's, it's one of the problems. They don't quite know how to treat the Carthaginians. If they were an enemy they defeated in Italy, they could just absorb them. But Carthage is too big for that. and It's too far away. So they treat Carthage very much as an inferior after that war. And that's clearly the, you know, the cause of this second war is that people like Hannibal and his father resent the Romans pushing them around. You know, the Romans sort of seize Corsica and Sardinia because they can. 
um, from the Carthaginians and basically say, well, you know, if you, if you don't like it, fight us. And they know the Carthaginians aren't at that stage in a position to fight them. But the thing Hannibal does is really scare the Romans. You know, they are terrified. And if you think Alexander the Great can conquer the Persian Empire in three big battles and sieges, Hannibal inflicts worse losses on the Romans and they won't quit. They will not give in. And, you know, um, the commander who's blamed Varro for the, at least gets blamed in the sources for the defeat at Cannae when 50,000 Romans and allies are killed in a day and another, you know, nearly 20,000 captured. Out of your entire adult male population eligible for military service is about 700,000 when the war starts. And you've already lost badly in some of the earlier battles. So this is, you know, these are really significant losses. And as I say, one third of Rome's Senate, 100 out of 300, more than 100 are dead. People you knew, people who are making the decisions, people you sit, sit next to at meetings of the Senate. So you would think most normal states would at this point negotiate and say, okay, because, you know, peace in the ancient world, they had this tendency to declare, the Greeks are, are very fond of this, they'll sign a peace treaty and declare 20 years peace between us or, or even 100 years peace. And it, mm. whatever happens, they never have that period of peace. Either they start the war most often before or very occasionally the peace treaty lasts a bit longer. But that the number that's on the paper, on that document, bears no relation at all to what will actually happen. But that's how ancient states operate. Yes, you lose some prestige, you lose some money, but the Romans just won't accept that. And another big difference, if you look at any, you know, when the Persians come to invade Greece in 490 BC or 480 BC, there are exiles from Athens, from Sparta, with the Persian army and advising the Persian king. There's never a Roman serving with the Carthaginians. You know, if you can't be politically successful at Rome, then it's not worth being successful anyway. You, you know, you, you, you live and die with the Republic. So they do identify very strongly. And given that, you know, you can look, these Romans are not by this time ethnically all, all Roman, all Latin. They're a mixed bag of Italians, but they they feel that they belong to this republic, this state, and they'll fight, they'll die for it, and they will just keep going. And in the end, they wear Hannibal down. And and that's that fear that just over 50 years later that Cato will represent. Carthage nearly destroyed us. That's the memory. You know, this is, we were on the brink of, that was it. The republic would be gone. Rome would be gone forever. If we let them grow prosperous again, they could do it. They could come back. So that's, you know, they move to destroy and the Romans make it harder for themselves than they should because their army isn't as efficient by this time. So it takes them three years to win a war against it's very one-sided in other respects. But even so, they've got to do it. And Carthage as a political entity is gone. You know, it is simply, it will not be there. It will return as a Roman colony a little bit later. Uh, but that's the Carthage that then emerges is very much Roman. So it's, it's and that's I think that contributes to this Roman sense of you you know every war is a battle to the death because the Second Punic War the struggle with Hannibal really did feel like it to them you know you can sense that that they and just you look at the losses you look at the devastation you can understand how again we know that they will keep going and they will win but mm -hmm. they didn't at the time yeah. so you know it's clearly a traumatic event that. Um, has long-term repercussions in Roman society, the Roman economy, all of these things, but also their mentality. You know, you, you do feel that they, they, they're they scared and they react like a lot of frightened people. They, they, they really want to take that threat out forever. Mm -hmm. mm, yeah, so they wipe them off the planet. Uh, <laughs> yeah, as you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah th that's what we do. It's <laughs> humorous. <laughs> I love how, in some uh, odd sense, history works, uh, light works, because if if we follow the legend, if Troy never fell, uh, Romulus and Rem's uh, ancestor would never come to Rome, uh, to Italy, and we would never have maybe Rome built. But uh, speaking about great people, uh, uh, let's speak about Julius Caesar. We haven't mentioned him yet. Uh, it's it's hard to pinpoint what moment of his life defined Julius Caesar, right? But certainly, certainly one of pivotal moments was the crossing of the Rubicon. So, how did you 
perceive Caesar in this point of no return? How do you understand his never-ending ambitions? What would Caesar say? <laughs> um, I mean, the, the, the marvelous thing about that period is that we, because, to a great extent, because of the orator Cicero, because of his letters, we have so much more information of what what was happening, but also what people were saying, all the rumors, the false reports, yeah. you know, because a couple of months before this, in the previous year, the story went round Rome that Julius Caesar had marched into Italy, and one of the consuls of the year takes a sword to Pompey and tells him to defend the Republic without actually saying by name against Julius Caesar, but everybody knows that. And then a few days later, they're all embarrassed because they realize, actually, he's still in his province, hasn't done anything, so there isn't the civil war that we thought was going to... You get that sense that the, the, the frustrating bit is that in antiquity, a set, a collection of letters written by Julius Caesar to Cicero and by Cicero back to Caesar survived. And only a handful of them have, have led, same as there were also letters to Augustus and a collection to Pompey that haven't been preserved. So there are aspects we don't know because Cicero by this time is outside Rome. He's come back from Cilicia, southern Turkey today, and he's hoping to get a triumph for a very minor campaign on the border with Syria. So he's got a few troops, which means he's got the embarrassment if he has a military authority at that time, and there's this civil war breaking out, so he can't really stay out of it. Um, but he doesn't know what's going on. He's trying to learn it. It's This is a guess, and again, we've got to come back to what we said earlier. You've got to be very clear when you're saying that, but I suspect each side thought that the other one would back down that they could threaten. It was one of those cases where they think, surely they won't fight over this. Because essentially, there is no ideological difference between Julius Caesar and the senators who oppose him. And again, mm -hmm. modern scholars will often say Julius Caesar fights the Senate. That's not true. The majority of the Senate just doesn't want to fight anybody. You know, they, they don't want to get killed. They don't yeah. want to pick the wrong side. <laughs> and they don't want a civil war. Who would? You know, you don't want your estate mm -hmm. devastated by the armies coming through. So it's a group of senators who don't like Julius Caesar or think that he's finished or think this is going to be the winning side are bitterly opposed to him. And they wish to destroy, end his career, or at the very least make him dependent on Pompey so he's going to take a big blow to his prestige. Julius Caesar, on the other hand, is willing to fight a civil war and plunge the world into chaos to protect his reputation and his status. And, you know, while you can see his point of view on the basis that he's been legally voted all these offices, all these commands in Gaul, he's been given that he has had more days of public thanksgiving voted to him by the Senate than the people of Rome in the last 10 years than any Roman general up until this point, including Pompey. So until just recently, everyone's been saying, great, marvelous, look what you're doing, isn't this wonderful? Yeah, we, nobody, we never like the Gauls anyway. They're, tr they're our traditional enemy. Well done, you know, this sort of thing. <laughs> and suddenly they turn on him and say, oh, no, you can't have this and you can't have that. So I think neither side can quite believe that the other one will fight. They think in the end they can threaten and posture. And it's interesting that Caesar, you know, yes, on the one hand, crossing the Rubicon is that moment where from that point on, you could say that he isn't legally allowed to command the soldiers he commands. He hasn't been told by the Senate to come back for this reason. So he is, the, from that point on, he's a rebel. You know, he is um, challenging the state. But he keeps on asking, if you follow day by day what, what happens in those next few months, he keeps on saying he wants to talk, he wants to negotiate, he wants to do a deal, he wants to talk. Can he meet Pompey face to face? You know, can we just sort this out? And... Mm -hmm. Pompey's allies won't let Pompey meet him because they don't trust Pompey. And the problem is Julius Caesar, one thing that does come through from all the sources is he clearly had a lot of charm. You know, he was very persuasive in the way that you get it with some modern politicians, even some that, you know, sometimes people will tell you if you're in the room with this man or this woman, you just find yourself agreeing with them, even if you, you don't agree with any of their politics, but there's, there's just Real something about their person. Yes, I've heard, you know, at least two people I've met who are very polar opposites to him politically went to meet him and ended up donating money to his campaign and walked out of that room <laughs> not knowing why. And they just couldn't understand it to this day, but they just thought, he's good. There is something. And I don't think that really came across on, on TV, say. I mean, it, it, maybe it's the difference between I, I'm British and you know, the, the style of American politics is very different to what we have over here. Um, but Caesar clearly had that. And 
So I think people didn't trust him. And that's, and the people who come to hate him really hate him because they see other people won over by this charm and they, that sort of annoys them all the four. And someone like Hato, you know, clearly lacks charm. He doesn't have it. He's got a big personality, but it's not charm. It's not, he's not, people don't like him. They respect him. They're frightened of him, but they, they don't like him so much. It's, uh, it seems that they liked, you know, and, and, it, mm. and again, there's, there's, one of the problems is, you, you know, you get the sources suggesting this whole soap opera element of Roman politics where, you know, Caesar is having this affair with Cato's half-sister, the mother of Brutus. You know, so all of this is going on in the background. And they go, so yes, you know, there's a lot of reasons for you not to like this guy. <laughs> but in the end, you feel this civil war is pointless. And there is something frustrating when you're writing about it because you really think if these people could have just sat down and talked it through, what would, be, what, what would have been so terrible if Julius Caesar had come back and had a second consulship? And then maybe gone on to another province. You know, I don't think that really was the end of the Roman world or the the monarchy that would in fact come. But again, people at the time clearly didn't believe that. They thought this this person is a real threat to us. Um, and it's so you feel there's a lot of misunderstanding. But I think some of it comes back to this Roman tradition we were talking about when we were talking about warfare of not giving in. And it's mm -hmm. one of the reasons Roman civil wars are so bitter is that all of your your sort of your upbringing as an aristocrat is all about you keep fighting and you just keep fighting and you never quit and you'll win in the end. Mm -hmm. And when you've got two groups of people who've been brought up the same way, who both yeah. think that yeah. way, then your civil wars are going to be bad because nobody's <laughs> going to give in and you can't really negotiate. And Roman civil wars don't end with negotiation. You have the sort of temporary truces between Mark Antony and... Octavian Augustus, call him what you will at that stage, and Lepidus, but it doesn't last. And most of them you fight to the death. And it's Caesar is the oddity in that he he doesn't kill his opponents. You know, he keeps boasting of his clemency, his clementia, and saying, you know, this is a new way of victory. And he captures people, lets them go, and then they fight him again. And sometimes he lets them go a second time before he kills them the third time. <laughs> and of course, later, Antony and Octavian will say, well, Caesar pardoned all these people like Brutus and Cassius, and look what they did to him. So we're not going to make the same mistake. So yeah. uh, Augustus, uh, right, he formed his personal guard, uh, like his guardship, because of what happened to Caesar. Yes, exactly. And they state when they, they post the prescription list, you know, these death lists of people who lose all legal rights and anybody can kill them and claim a reward if you bring their head to the authorities. They say quite expressly, this is because Caesar pardoned people and they rewarded his kindness with hatred and they murdered him. So, you know, we are not going to, we're not going to take that chance. Sorry, but you, <laughs> that's it. Brilliant. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously that's, uh, it has an ancient, obviously, spark to it. Uh, but uh, on that note, obviously, it's a lot about, it was a lot about politics and, you know, people, wanting to negotiate, not negotiate. And it feels like you said, a lot of these conflicts uh, could, if people just sat down and dealt with it, it strongly reminds of even today. Like, oh, if people yeah. could just sit down <laughs> yeah. and talk. It feels but, like solutions would come, come on. Although sometimes, as we all know, occasionally from family meetings where things go wrong, you can all sit around the table and be yelling at each other quite quickly as well. <laughs> so it doesn't always work. It's, but then human history is, shows that again and again, people fight over things that with hindsight, you think, you know, was it really worth it? Um, it's quite striking, again, right, looking at the, the wars between the Romans and the Persians in the, the sort of 6th century AD, and um, in particular Justinian and that era. Often one side will start a war because they've got a, a short-term advantage and they think, I can get some glory, I can get some loot and some money from the other side and have a treaty whereby it'll make clear that I'm bigger and more important than they are. And they keep rolling the dice one more time because they do quite well early on when the enemy is weak. But then they think, oh, I can gain a bit more. I can get a, a stronger bargaining position. And they push it to the point where they actually don't gain very much and they've spent far more because these wars get more and more costly more and more difficult. So they end up grudgingly negotiating and settling on a peace treaty. But what's very interesting about those wars between the two empires is that all the way through, every year they're sending embassies to each other. So the warfare is always this quite restrained, 
okay, we'll fight for a bit, but let's talk about it. I'm just, you know, you can see I'm stronger than you at the moment, so give me a good deal and we can be friends again. It's it's that mm -hmm. sort of, the problem is each one thinks they can get a better better bargaining position, a better hand of cards. So they keep risky and it goes on and on, even when, in fact, they are negotiating very, very frequently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, I have, obviously, we now mentioned Senate, and uh, I don't want to forget to ask you this. Uh, obviously, we... Uh, there is a story in 509 BC the there was overthrow of uh, monarchy and creation of uh, Senate. But I've read that that story is disputed, as you know, there's a lot of myth to it. What do you? How do you think? What's your take on creation of the Roman Republic? Well, it it clearly happened around about that time. Something happened at that stage where it the Rome became a different system, and from then on there. They're naming the years by the two consuls. The Romans don't start writing history down until after they've defeated Hannibal. So that's 300 years later, just slightly over before. So how much do you remember? You know, people have passed down. Um, there are songs within the noble family celebrating their deeds. There are traditions. There are stories. You, you do wonder how much the Romans really knew about what had happened that long ago. You suspect it's a mixture. Some of those traditions, some of those what are now seem like myths, probably have a basis of of some truth in them, and people like the ones or but they've been added to. Um, on the other hand, you know the Greek historian Polybius, who's in Rome in the second century BC, claimed to have seen a treaty made with Carthage in within a few years of the Republic being founded, and that there was still the document. So the Romans do keep some records even from early on, and they keep lots of records about property. And some of their laws, it, it's not quite clear when those are written down. You know, bear in mind, 509, it's the same sort of time that the the Athenians are, with Cleisthenes are creating their democratic form of government. So, you know, we sometimes, because we, we don't know so much about the Romans and the sources are different, we, we forget what's going on in the wider world. There seems to be a move at that time in... Greece, in a lot of the islands, um, and in Italy, away from monarchies towards elected officials in, in your system, a sort of aristocratic form of government. How it then develops into the Roman Republic that we can start to understand and study, which really isn't till the second century BC and to some extent the first, um, and how many of the traditions of, you know, when the patricians and plebeians argue with each other, when the tribunes of the plebs are created, um, you know, the plebs go on strike, all these, these sorts of disputes, things like that probably happen, but whether they quite happen in the way the stories are preserved, you suspect, again, it's a mixture. Some of it's probably near enough right, and then some of it's just romantic embellishment. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, but uh, I, I wanted to ask you also on that uh, note that this is maybe a little bit uh, newer, but a uh, big part of the Roman history is obviously its relationship to the religion and particularly later Christianity. Uh, and, you know, we, we, for example, we view uh, Marcus Aurelius, obviously in present time, as this uh, a man who solved the universe, and we tend to see him as a good guy, but uh, in Christian uh, history, he wouldn't be viewed uh, so favorably. Uh, how, do, how much do you think uh, that Christianity and that uh, you know, transition from ancient Roman religion to that actually influenced empire. Do you think uh, that it had to deal with its fall and how later Eastern empire was uh, uh, unraveled and things like that? Well, how do you think, how much of its role do you think is important in, in its history? It's hard to say because obviously the, the sort of gradual spread of Christianity to the point where under Constantine it becomes the, the sort of main religion of the empire that's happening over a long period of time when other changes in society were happening as well. So which is the, the critical thing? One striking thing is that in terms of its ideology of empire, it doesn't really change anything much at all. You know, the, the Romans before had considered themselves favored by the gods, beloved of the gods. And, you know, they, the, the sheer fact that you end up with a, with a pope who is Pontifex Maximus, you know, you take on the title of priesthood that Julius Caesar had had, um, because so the organization 
adds to it, it builds on, but it's because it's developing at a time when the Roman Empire has become more and more bureaucratic, um, less efficient, it takes on, the church sort of structures itself around that. I think it's it's probably less of a change it, it's than we sometimes make out. I, I think, again, the civil wars have been happening for a long time before then, and with the possible exception of one in the late 4th century AD, none of them are between formerly Christians and pagans, say. Um, you know, they, they, again, these are civil wars just about power. There's not ideology in it at all. It's about who's going to be emperor. And that's already happening. I suspect one of the problems is that sometimes scholars will come and because we know what Christianity means, we look at the Roman Empire and we try and estimate the number of Christians and we, we take a sort of theological standpoint and we say, well, Unless you believe exclusively in this, there's only one God, Jesus is his son, this is how you get salvation, then you're not properly a Christian. But that's thinking in a modern monotheistic way. If you're coming from the polytheistic tradition of the ancient world, what I suspect happened is that there were quite a lot of people who listened to what the Christians were saying and thought, yeah, that's okay, and just added Jesus or the Hebrew God, however you call it, to the, the gods they revered already. There's even a story, it's from the Historia Augusta, so it's not that reliable, that the Severus Alexander had amongst his sort of household gods, the ones he'd, he'd worshipped, he had a little statue of Jesus. Now, what that looked like, how did you depict? But it's, I remember talking to someone who was a, um, a Christian uh, minister who was, was working in India, and he said, well, when you talk to people, they, they're very often quite happen to, happy to say, from the Hindu point of view, Yes, fine, we can just fit Jesus in. It doesn't mean you stop <laughs> doing it. Because again, you've got lots of gods. So so I suspect people sometimes say, you know, Constantine, he's appealing to this minority religion. I suspect by that time, actually, this is a pretty large number of people that are, some of them are what we would consider Christians, but some of them are sympathetic to Christians or sort of might see themselves as Christian, but also as other things as well. Um, and that might explain the development, you know, the, the reverence for saints and the association, you know, in the same way you'll light a candle to a saint for if you're going on a journey and this sort of thing develops on from traditions you've always had and you just emerge. So I suspect, I don't think it really weakened the Roman Empire. And you can see, obviously, later on, a lot of money is invested in churches, in monasteries, in these foundations. But actually... It's not that different from building temples, building basilicas and things you've done in the past. Somebody's still got to provide the materials you use, which means somebody's making money out of that. You've got the labor force. So like a lot of the big monuments we see in the ancient world, you know, we see the grand temple. We see the aqueduct. Aqueduct has a practical purpose. Bathhouse is to make your life comfortable. Temple is about status. It's about um, reverence for the gods. But they only get there because somebody spent a lot of money. And it's created jobs and work and employment for a lot of people. So, you know, sometimes you see these things, oh, they're a drain. Well, actually, they're not, because if you keep building these things, somebody's got to do that work. And even if it's mm -hmm. a donation, you know, the, the city magistrates or the emperor is saying, I am paying for this, somebody is still paying for this. So it it's still an important part of, of the empire. I think there are other reasons. It's it's, it's, as I say, there are so many other changes going on in society of which this is part that I suspect it isn't it isn't something that weakens because the Roman army does not fight any differently because it's become Christian. You know, Constantine's men might paint the Cairo on their shields, but you will still, if you capture a city, you'll enslave the population or you'll massacre them. <laughs> They're just as ruthless. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, it's 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 it doesn't change the way you do things. The emperor still has, you know, the emperor comes just to see himself as sort of God's representative on earth in the same way that you'd been there for, you know, you're the senior magistrate of the Republic, but you're still there to represent good law, good rule, stability, all of these things. Mm -hmm. And execute your own son, but... Uh, sometimes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <It's, laughs> not, not a time for very happy families or getting on with people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, we are on a time limit here again, but and I would love to chat about maybe Constantine and how I think that he was actually a bit more pragmatic than we think. 
objectively looking to it now and that was part of his political agenda but uh, let's go in with our little tradition on this podcast where we at the end of every episode we say a quote from one of our people on our language and translate it to english and i've chosen a quote from writer known uh called uh writer named uh uh miloš stanjaski and he said on our language cijela zemlja izgrađena je na prošlost daleko je od mene i sama pomisao da bi na toj prošlosti trebalo stati daleko od toga and translated to english it would be the whole country is built on the past the very thought that we should stop at that past is far from me far from it yeah that's his quote i hope very sad sorry yeah i hope you enjoy this episode as we did and yep though i as you've noticed i like talking about the romans so <laughs> <laughs> and as you notice we love the hearing about <laughs> listening about romans <laughs> so that Long live the empire. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you for for your time. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Yeah. We stay genuine, uncensored and unscripted and we always will as we have to order our usual. Share us, subscribe us and stay tuned until the next Wednesday. Because